Hi, my name is Ian Craig. I work for Wiley Blackwell in their market research and analysis department. Our group gets involved in a broad spectrum of analysis, but for the last few years I've been primarily concerned with the application of citation analysis to journal development. This talk aims to give you some background to the ubiquitous impact factor, but also to introduce some lesser known journal metrics and some of the emerging metrics which work at the level of an individual author. But first, let's go back to 1976, a year that saw the formation of Apple computers. The supersonic airline Concorde enters commercial service. Jimmy Carter defeats Gerald Ford in the US presidential election. And the Institute of Scientific Information released their first batch of impact factors. While the fortunes and reputation of Apple, Concorde and Jimmy Carter have ebbed and flowed in the intervening decades, ISI's impact factor has remained virtually unchallenged as the metric with which to evaluate scholarly journals. Until now. Today we have a rich variety of metrics with which journals and individuals are evaluated. This profusion of metrics is accelerating, ranging from the modest tinkering of impact factor variants which adjust for some of the weaknesses of the original formulation, through sophisticated advances such as the eigenfactor and the SNP, to the elegant simplicity of the H-index. While all of those metrics are fundamentally based on citation counting, it is notable that even in 2010 there is still a place for the application of good old-fashioned peer review as a mechanism to establish research quality. But before we progress to the description and comparison between different metrics, it is worth spending a little time defining the citation universes within which we will calculate these metrics. The monopoly that ISI had on the citation counting business lasted for nearly three decades before a major commercial product appeared. Elsevier launched Scopus in 2004, and this was shortly followed by the freely available Google Scholar. Whenever undertaking any analysis, it is imperative to understand where the edges of the citation universe lies. With ISI and Scopus it is quite clear. They have defined title lists and reasonably transparent evaluation procedures for adding new content. Google Scholar, by contrast, is a mixed bag of journal articles, content from institutional and subject repositories, plus other grade literature, including materials harvested from researchers' personal websites. A measure of coverage, how much of the scholarly communication is included in a given database, would be an exceptionally useful measure to accompany a raw citation count. For instance, a paper that received four citations in a database that only covers 30% of the scholarly output in that subject area should be considered differently from an article that received four citations where coverage was 95%. In terms of pure size, iSize Web of Science covers around 11,000 peer-reviewed journals, whereas Scopus covers around 16,500 titles. Superficially, iSize taken an 80-20 approach to coverage, and this was eminently sensible in the early days when their costs were largely dependent on how many journals they covered. They felt they could cover most of the articles and citations without covering all the journals. By contrast, Scopus initially took the view that bigger is better, and that a user would rather know they'd been cited ten times rather than eight times, even if the additional two citations were from a rather more obscure title. In recent years, however, they too have implemented an evaluation procedure to restrict coverage. Bear in mind also that these figures are the current day coverage. Web of Science has expanded over time to hit this level, and while it boasts backfiles such as the centuries of science and social science, this coverage is only for a subset of the most prestigious journals. Scopus, by contrast, appears to be attempting to include coverage back to Volume 1 where possible, although their citation counts are only accurate in content from 1996 onwards. Having established that coverage in a given citation universe is an important concept, let's move on to some metrics and begin with describing the two major classes of journal metrics. These can be summarised as using unweighted or weighted citation counts. An unweighted count means that it does not matter which journal you received a citation from. 
All that is important is how many citations were received. By contrast, the weighted metrics take into account characteristics of the citing journal. So crudely put, a citation from a prestigious journal is worth more than a citation from a less prestigious journal. Weighted metrics such as eigenfactor will be discussed in detail later on, but let's start with a granddaddy of all citation metrics, the journal impact factor. The impact factor is essentially the average number of citations per article for a given journal. More explicitly, the numerator of the impact factor is the number of citations given in a one-year period, what can be described as the census period, to journal content published in the prior two years, what can be described as the target period. The denominator of the calculation is the number of citable items published in the two-year target period. It should be emphasised that the phrase citable item is important here. A citable item is a substantive piece of research and would include original research papers and review papers. Excluded from the citable item count would be items like editorial material, book reviews, some short communications, obituaries, etc. While the denominator excludes these non-citable items, any citations to this non-citable subset, an oxymoron, will be included in the numerator. So for purists, the impact factor is not actually an average. The slightly contrived nature of this average measure of journal citedness is one of a number of criticisms which have been levelled against it. Ever since its creation, people have been queuing up to knock it down. Without claiming to be exhaustive, the main criticisms are as follows. Firstly, the length of the target period is too short for those subjects where citations take a while to build up. The consequence of this is that the proportion of lifetime citations which fall within the two-year period is comparatively small. Secondly, only citations between journal articles are counted, thus disadvantaging those subject areas where a significant proportion of communication is via non-journal outputs like books. Thirdly, there are large differences between subject areas in the level of coverage in the ISI citation indices. For example, a much larger proportion of life sciences titles are indexed than in the arts and humanities. But despite these and other criticism, the impact factor works reasonably well as long as you do not attempt intersubject comparisons or attempt to extrapolate the metric to the authors themselves. Numerous alternatives have been proposed which correct for various flaws in the impact factor. Some are relatively minor, others are more sophisticated. Some, like the source normalised impact per publication, the SNP, are based on an entirely different citation universe, the Scopus universe. The SNP is certainly more complex than the impact factor, but it can be broken down into readily understandable chunks. The first thing to say about SNP is that it too is a ratio. The numerator is a value described as the raw impact per paper, RIP for short, and the denominator is a value described as the relative database citation potential. Taking the RIP first, this is a similar statistic to the impact factor in that it is an average citation per article. It is different in that it has a three-year target period rather than two, and it only counts citations to citable content. These two modifications address two of the core criticisms of the impact factor. The relative database citation potential is a trickier, trickier value to define, and even to say, and it is best to build up to this slowly. Firstly, let's consider the last two words of the measure, citation potential. It is understood that the number of references per article can vary substantially between subject areas. The more references in an article, the more citations a given article can receive. A subject area with a high average number of references can be described as having a high citation potential. By contrast, if a subject has a low citation potential, the pool of citations to go around will be smaller, and in many cases much smaller. 
This means that articles from subject areas with disparate citation potentials may expect to receive very different numbers of citations for reasons that are not related to the intrinsic quality of the article in question. This clearly biases the system in favour of journals in subject areas with high citation potential. To account for this bias, one could normalise the citation count by citation potential. In effect, dividing the RIP by a value representing the citation potential of that subject area. Citation potential can therefore be defined as the average number of references of a certain age in the articles which cite a given journal. So much for citation potential. What about relative database citation potential? Taking the phrase apart some more, database refers to the fact that these calculations are going on within a specific database, Scopus, and that only the citations to and from papers indexed in Scopus are counted. If one were to apply the SNP methodology within Web of Science, one would most likely come up with a slightly different citation potential. And finally, relative is a nod to the fact that each journal citation potential has been normalised relative to the median citation potential within the database. Annual SNP values have been retrospectively calculated covering the period 1999 to 2009 and are available from scopus.com and freely available at journalmetrics.com. Data will be released twice yearly, at which point all historical metrics will be recalculated to reflect changes in the composition of the Scopus database. In this fashion, longitudinal analysis becomes a much simpler proposition. The SNP is definitely one metric to watch. In addition to the SNP, we also have a metric based on Scopus data named the SIMAGO Journal Rank Indicator, SJR for short. This is similar to another metric named the Eigenfactor, although that is based on ISI data. Both metrics are descended from social network theory and both take the view that citations should not be treated equally. Instead, the quality of the citing source should be factored into the calculation in some fashion so as to give some citations more weight than others. The process can best be compared to the procedure of a search engine ranking websites so that when a search is performed, the most relevant sites are listed at the top of the results page. What algorithms like Google's PageRank do when ranking a website is to look at which other websites are linking to that site. If you are, for example, a website devoted to journalism, then being linked to by a prestigious news organisation such as Reuters or Associated Press is conveying more prestige than if you were linked to by one of the numerous gossip magazines. In turn, prestige of those sources which link to our website are conveyed by the links they in turn receive, and so on. While it may seem a little circular, we pretty much all accept that Google produces search results which are more or less in line with our expectation heuristic. Moving to journals and citations, the Eigenfactor and SJR start off by creating an enormous table showing which journals have been cited by which others and in what quantities. They then set up an equation which involved each and every point in their data table. For the Eigenfactor, this was about 73 million data points. They then solved this equation by performing a series of iterations to calculate a series of values comparing how each new generation of values compares to the last. The end point was reached when no more changes apparent. These values then became the eigenfactor. Now, as mentioned previously, SNP values are released twice a year on scopus.com and on journalmetrics.com. The eigenfactor and article influence are also available in two locations, on the subscription-based journal citation reports and freely available on eigenfactor.org. The SJR data are also available on scopus.com and freely available at simagojr.com. Physical availability of these new metrics, rather than just a theoretical description in a research paper, is essential to adoption of any new metrics, so these ones all successfully clear that hurdle. Moving away from metrics which are based at the level of a journal, there has been an increasing trend to rank individual authors by citation-derived measures. Among the factors driving this trend, 
are the realisation that within a journal there can be very large differences amongst the citations received by different articles. Hence, judging a person by the journals they publish in rather than by the articles themselves is somewhat short-sighted. Furthermore, there has been an increasing trend for the evaluation of individuals, allied with an increase in the, in the availability of article citation data. These three factors converged in 2005 when physicist George Hirsch proposed his famous H-index, and to quote, I proposed the index H, defined as the number of papers with a citation number greater than or equal to H, as a useful index to characterise the scientific output of a researcher. In simple terms, an H-index of 5 means that the author has published 5 papers, each cited at least 5 times, and an H-index of 50 means that the author has published 50 papers, each cited at least 50 times. Hirsch's formulation was elegant and easily understood. It is readily calculable for most citation indices, including Web of Science and Scopus. It captures elements of quantity and quality of publication, and reduces the outlier effect of very highly cited publications. But it was not without criticism. Some pointed out by Hirsch himself in his landmark paper. It requires an accurate list of an author's output, which is no mean feat when calculating the index for a large number of authors, some of which will share the same name. The maximum H is the maximum number of papers published. This therefore favours prolific or older authors. It can never decrease, but can increase, even if the author is inactive, or in some cases dead. And interfield comparisons remain problematic. In response to those perceived weaknesses, the bibliometrics community rushed to propose H-index variants which corrected these problems. There is a veritable alphabet of variants, far too many to go into detail, and each seemingly more complex than the last. But despite all these variants, a few studies have shown that the rankings of authors generated by various author metric variants allow the metrics to be broadly broken down into one of two classes, namely metrics which measure the size of the productive core, i.e. how many publications, and metrics which measure the impact of the productive core, i.e. how many citations. Now it should be stated that these studies are with relatively small data sets that cannot yet be considered as definitive, but it is perhaps a relief that the community at large may only need to understand two author metrics rather than the scores which are already in existence. Notwithstanding the problem of choosing which metric to use, there are still common problems which need to be addressed before author metrics gain universal acceptance. Firstly, there is the problem of author disambiguation, resolving which of the multiple J. Smiths are which. There are moves afoot to improve author identification by means of assigning a unique identifier to each author and have authors associate that identifier to each of their publications. Two working examples of such schemes are Researcher ID by ISI and the Scopus Author Identifier. However, both schemes recognise the need for a broader, more ambitious cross-publisher scheme. To this end, the Open Researcher and Contributor ID, known as ORCID for short, is currently in development, using data from ISI, Scopus, Scholar Universe, Crossref, and many participating publishers such as Wiley, Springer and Nature. However, even if ORCID is successfully implemented, it is likely that authors will need to manually assign any historical publications into their profile, as well as any new ones, a rather time-consuming task. The next problem is the requirement to update each metric after the publication of each new paper, or a citation of existing ones. This could be handled automatically in a system such as envisioned by ORCID, which would be linked to products like Scopus or Web of Science, but until then, it is going to be quite a chore. This brings up the next question. An author may have a different H-index depending on which citation index was used to calculate. Which is correct? Perhaps this may hasten a hybrid Web of Science Scopus universe, where unique citations from each will be displayed alongside all the citations in common. 
Finally, there is the question of context. Let's say you are a molecular biologist with five years postdoctoral experience and you have an H index of 10. What does that actually mean? Without a benchmark of other molecular biologists to measure yourself against, how do you know whether you're good, bad, or just average? One step in this direction has been made by Italian researchers who have measured the H and G indices of all Italian university re- researchers in the hard sciences over a five-year period. Indices were calculated for just over 21,000 individuals, covering 165 niche subject fields in nine broader domains. Much more work of this type will be necessary in order to maximise the utility of the H index invariants. My final thoughts are related to where journal or author metrics may be heading in the future. Up until now, I've talked about counting citations. But publishers now count online usage of their content. And libraries are much more likely to base their collection decisions based on actual usage than on citation impact. Usage, of course, has its own problems. For instance, the different usage profiles of research-intensive compared to teaching institutions. The uncertainty about the motivation for making that download, and whether it was read or simply discarded. The effect that the user interface can have, i.e. whether you land on the abstract or the full text page. And the effect that events outside the publisher's control can have. For example, if a large proportion of users are being referred to you by Google, what happens when they tinker with their search algorithm? There is also a general reluctance for publishers to publicise their user statistics. With citations, these events are trapped in amber and can be discovered by future researchers. Not so with usage logs, which are infrequently made available to the research community. That said, some data does exist in the public domain, such as the article-level metrics data provided by the Public Library of Science. Moreover, some researchers have persuaded publishers to part with the usage data, and publications are beginning to trickle out. There is, of course, always the possibility for institutes to perform their own usage analysis based on data on article requests made via their link resolvers. And in theory, this usage should mirror the usage that a publisher would log. Perhaps that is a fruitful avenue of research to pursue. Although it must be remembered that these results should be framed in the local context of the institution within which these statistics were measured. It must be remembered too that an article may be accessed on a number of platforms in addition to the publisher's website. For instance, in PubMed Central, in EBSCO or Ovid, or on an institutional repository, or on a society website. Counting usage on only one of these platforms gives a mistaken perspective of the overall use that a given article receives. Projects such as Pyrus 2 aim to combine usage across a number of different platforms, giving a broader perspective of an article's usage. In addition to usage statistics, we've also begun to see features such as post-peer review commenting. I'm unclear whether a critical mass of commentators exists to make this a practical solution, however. The recent high-profile case on Amazon, where a writer with his own agenda to advance used a pseudonym to write a series of scaling book reviews, suggests that these types of feedback systems need to be carefully controlled to avoid corruption. In addition to the researcher profiles discussed in relation to ORCID, there are numerous, numerous other products which aim to profile broad swathes of researchers. Examples include Colexis, Biomed Experts, Scholarometer and Scholar Universe. This seems to be a growth industry capitalising on the social network phenomenon and for a number of these services leveraging the decades-old technique of co-citation analysis, essentially identifying the relative frequencies by which a given author is cited alongside others. Finally, looking to the past, we discover that we actually have a reasonable system for the assessment of research quality. It's called peer review. While not perfect, it is a reasonable foundation for assessment. 
In today's interconnected world with instant access to information, it is sometimes too easy to dismiss the techniques which don't deliver an instant numerical result. It is notable that the UK considered replacing its traditional peer-review-based institutional assessment programme with bibliometric data. However, after a pilot programme, the decision was taken that the data were not robust enough to be a substitute for peer review. So for forthcoming assessment exercises, the bibliometric data will be made available to the panels undertaking the peer review, but the primary method of assessment will be peer review. The bibliometric data will be there for supplementary evidence only. This is the long-term solution that I envisage. A composite measure based on a number of different factors, usage, citations and peer review, rather than just a single one of these. This is a view that recognises that success is not a one-dimensional factor. It means different things to different people. So, thanks for listening. If you've got any comments or questions, you can reach me at ian.craig at wiley.com. Thanks very much.